continuing the narrative in the 19th chapter of John. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross. We thank you, Lord God, that you came in human form, a body like ours that you designed, and you surrendered yourself unto death and death on a cross. You did this as part of your perfect plan, Lord God, to to redeem us, to draw us to yourself for your eternal glory. God, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of, of what you want to show us in Scripture, Lord God, that all these things took place, that Scripture might be fulfilled, and that your people might be redeemed, and that your name might be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move through that narrative in John chapter 19, John takes great care to point out prophecies that were fulfilled by what Jesus did, by his perfect plan in the fullness of time that God-man, God incarnate, would perfectly carry out a plan from eternity past. This was not a plan B. This was not an accident. This was something that God knew from before the foundation of the earth. And every word in this chapter precisely prepares us, even today, to understand how perfect this plan is. Looking at verse 38, we, we see that John gives account of how Christ is crucified. Not one of his bones is broken. And again, it says, Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. But then John transitions and he goes from from his own eyewitness account to bringing in specific men, two men in particular, by name that are important to this account. Even these two men, they're there that scripture might be fulfilled. Let's consider who these two guys are for just a minute. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Curiously enough, this, this Joseph of Arimathea is actually mentioned, albeit briefly, in all four of the Gospels. We know that he was a rich man. We know that he was a righteous man, that he was part of the council, and that that council was part of the group of men that sought to crucify Christ. In a sense, Joseph was a a dissident of that group. 
And scripture tells us that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. So when Christ was crucified and his body was taken down from the cross, God ordained from eternity past that this man would have particular interest in the body of Christ. And he bravely went, even with the fear of the Jews, to Pilate and asked for his body. It says that, that Pilate granted permission to this Joseph of Arimathea and he, and he took away the body. And look who's with him in verse 39. Nicodemus. As our brother Pete refers to him as, as Nick at night. Part of the Pharisees. Part of the, the most devout group of Jews. And yet part of the group of people that most vehemently called for the crucifixion of Christ. These two men were part of a group of people that had been crying out for the crucifixion of Christ. Their countrymen, their fellow Israelites, their fellow brothers from the line of David rejoiced. But these men were grieved with great mourning. They asked for Christ's body. Verse 39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now what's happening here is incredibly important to pay attention to detail. You see, back at 37, John tells us that the body of our Savior was pierced. Another account explains that the, the, sword, the, the spear was used by a Roman centurion. He was stabbed. Because he had already been dead, they didn't break his bones. But when they pierced him, blood and water flowed. Now the scripture that's being fulfilled here is in the book of Zechariah. We learned Sunday that the tail end of Zechariah has two oracles. And, and this particular passage comes from the, the second oracle. In this oracle, for a devout Jew like Joseph of Arimathea or a devout Pharisee like Nicodemus would have brought to mind a king who had been pierced. If you look in your Bibles with me at Zechariah chapter 12, we find this oracle written by, by the prophet Zechariah, the word of God that stands 520 years before Christ would come. We're in a time where the people of Israel left out of exile, went back to the, the ruins of Jerusalem and began to rebuild. Yet they went back to a place with no king. In this passage, we'll, we'll look at verse 10 of Zechariah. The word of God says, and I will pour out, this is Zechariah 12:10, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. We see that fulfilled. We see that fulfilled. We see that this that's being described here was pierced, and those who were responsible for piercing him then weep. 
they weep unconsolably as one weeps for an only child, as one weeps bitterly over a firstborn. And you see, the, the amazing thing about how God's word works in this prophecy is that there's lots of double meanings that we have to understand. The next verse, verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 12, helps us understand that there is a king in view in this passage. In fact, there's two kings in view. Verse 11 says, And on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. You see what's happening here is it's comparing this future morning that the house of David will experience with the previous morning. Zechariah is now pointing back to a former king. See, if we think of scripture and we understand God's covenant with David, with God's covenant with God's people, there are a great number of precious promises about the Davidic line. And what we have here is we have John using the verse they will look on him whom they're pierced. And devout Jews like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, would look at this passage of Zechariah and they would immediately go to verse 11 and understand that this passage is pointing back to something that already happened. Another king of David's line, King Josiah. So if you've ever played that game where you have a mirror and you shine a flashlight on and it hits the mirror and you can aim the light where you want it to, that's what's happening here with Zechariah. God is, is taking the, the message, the type of King Josiah, and it's shining a light on Zechariah. And Zechariah then is shining this light on, uh, on what John is declaring to us and who this King Jesus is. So let's not miss the fact that we're, we're looking for the message of a king, a king who is pierced, a king for whom we would mourn, a king for whom we ourselves would take responsibility for his piercing. If you have your Bible with, please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 35. We're gonna do a, a bit of comparison and, and contrast with this Davidic king so that we would understand better all that Christ would do on our behalf. You'll recall first as we, as we delve into who Josiah is as a king, is he was a young king. He was responsible for going through and his, his servants would clean out the house of the Lord and they would discover the book of the law. And when Josiah found that book of the law, he brought it out and he had it read and he called for all the people of Israel to repent. You see already there, we have a parallel. We have the, the author of the book of the law who would declare it to the people demanding their repentance. Already there we begin to see, and if you look at how this passage begins, it begins with Josiah instituting, having read from the book of the law, a Passover. That Passover, we understand that all that Christ did took place the day before the preparation of Passover. The verse that we read that says, not one of his bones was broken, points to Numbers chapter nine, verse 12. It says, they would leave this sheep, this Passover lamb until the morning and not break any of its bones according to the statue of Passover and they would keep it. So this Davidic king institutes a Passover. And as we go through that chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 35, 
we see in verse 18 that what Josiah did in instituting this Passover was an unprecedented Passover. It was a Passover more exciting to the people of Israel, perhaps, than when their forefathers left Egypt in the first place. This king instituted a celebration of what God would do to set his people free. So again, when you see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus looking back and understanding Josiah, Josiah was known for one who proclaimed the law, for one who called to repentance, and for one who celebrated the Passover. How perfect, because now the Passover lamb, before the watching eyes of Jerusalem, was slain and crucified. We'll continue the narrative, we'll skip part of chapter 35, and we'll go to verse 20 of this chapter. And we see this king slain in battle. It says, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, what have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. You see that, Zechariah 12, 11, the king that was slain, that was pierced, died in this field of battle. And what's peculiar is that this king, Josiah, dies incognito. No one recognized that he was king. He was slain by his adversary with God's permission. Now, of course, Josiah did that sinfully. He marched into battle, he opposed this king, and God ordained that he'd lose his life. But our King Jesus marched incognito into battle. He came in on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, not recognized. And he gave his life at the hand of his enemy with the permission of a sovereign God. Verse 23 of Second Chronicles 35 says, And the archers shot King Josiah. An archer, of course, shoots with an arrow. It's a flying spear, and it pierces him. It says, the king said to his servants, take me away for I am badly wounded. So the servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to where? To Jerusalem. And he died and he was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Isn't this incredible? This is a king of David's line, pierced in battle. He dies. They carry him to Jerusalem, and they place him in a tomb. And you notice the tomb is described there? It's the tomb of his father's. It's the tomb of those who would be of the lineage of David. We know in biblical times that a, a tomb was a, a family tomb and they would bury someone there. And when their, their bones would, 
would be uh, decomposed and their body would be decomposed, they would open the tomb again and they would move the bones aside and bury the one who was of that lineage. Scripture also tells us here that there was great lament for this king. All of Jerusalem mourned. It says Jeremiah even uttered a, a lament and all the singing men and all the singing women had spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. Generations of faithful people of Israel remembered this King Josiah and mourned him. Let's go back to our, our little bridge text here in Zechariah. What do we see? What do we see about the mourning that's going to be predicted for this one who would come of the line of David? Look what it says, starting again at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one beeps, weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself. Pay attention to that. Each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. The wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. Their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself. And their wives by themselves. And the family of the Shimeonites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. What an interesting prophecy that God is, is telling the people that a spirit of grace and mercy will be poured on those who will weep, those who will mourn. But unlike Josiah, where the streets were filled with those who are mourning, where did the followers of Christ go when he was laid in the tomb? They hold up in a room and hid. They went secretly by night and asked for Christ's body because they were afraid. We see Joseph of Arimathea mourning. And we see Nicodemus coming to terms with this, this God-man that he sought out. He, he went to Jesus. Remember what he asked Jesus? What do you mean by born again? What, what do you mean by that? He came to understand this Jesus was the king. Not just any king, but the promised king. This king was crucified before their very eyes. He was pierced. They would have also known that as the book of Isaiah says, he was pierced for their transgressions. He was bruised for their iniquities. So what kind of tomb do we have for this king? We have a borrowed tomb. We have a, a new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea volunteered his own tomb. It had been hewn out of stone and another of the gospel accounts says it was nearby, it was convenient. And Joseph of Arimathea says, this is at my expense, Pilate, Allow me to take his body. And Pilate granted that. And Jesus was, was placed in that tomb. And that too fulfills a scripture for us. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This tomb was prepared for him. I did a little bit of research on Arimathea. Where is Arimathea? 
it comes up several times in scripture, and every time it comes up, it comes up with Joseph's name attached to it. There's not much I could learn about Arimathea. Did a little bit of digging, and it turns out that the Old Testament word used for Arimathea is Rama or Ramla. And guess who lived in and died in that town? A guy named Samuel. And Samuel anointed the king who would sit on the throne of David. And here, you know what we see in this text in John chapter 19? We see two men anointing the king. Anointing, not at this moment to evidently sit on his throne, but to be laid in a tomb. Scripture tells us with great care, Nicodemus, also who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloth and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They anointed him. They placed his body there. They placed him in a tomb where no one had yet been laid. And they did this because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand. This king, at an unprecedented Passover, like none before, would come as a lamb whose bones were not broken, but whose blood was shed, who was guilty of no sin, who was crucified on the behalf of our sins. We see that, that this unprecedented Passover leads us to a king who was mourned with fear, with affection, with conviction. These two men and the disciples of Jesus placed him in the tomb. We see all of these things taking place so that scripture might come to pass. These things came to pass to fulfill scripture. But there's much more to be said than just that. It's not as though God has this divine desire to check off all the places where I told you so, right? It would be insufficient for us to just talk about the prophecies that have been fulfilled through Christ. We have to understand why. Why are these prophecies fulfilled? Why is all of this precious detail given to us as his people? Zechariah 12 ends with, with each of these families mourning by themselves. It's curious too that unlike other places in scripture, it describes that these families are, are mourning together with their wives. If we think about the gospel account, those who, who kept vigil at Christ's tomb, the women Christ's sacrifice for, for all of the people who were in Jerusalem. Look at verse 13, sorry, chapter 13, verse 1. The book of Zechariah has a, has a tough time breaking off where a chapter ends. And so verse 1 sits as a transition between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And this is why scripture was fulfilled. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see this, this text that's acting as a mirror and helping us understand everything that had taken place in redemptive history is pointing us to the cross. 
Why did this happen in Jerusalem? What happened that day? A fountain reopened from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And how remarkable that John tells us that the two guys that were there included guys from the groups of people that wanted Christ crucified. They included Nicodemus, a member of the Pharisees. What must I do to be born again? Nicodemus asked the question that all of Scripture came to answer. What must I do to be born again? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If we look at the, the refrain going back to chapter 19, the phrase that Anne beautifully put on our, on our bulletin, it says, these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. The aim of all of Scripture the aim of all of God's plan from eternity past, that these things would come to pass, that scripture would be fulfilled. And if you skip ahead just one brief chapter in John, John chapter 20, starting at verse 30, John tells us in such clarity, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All these things happen that scripture might be fulfilled and scripture might be fulfilled that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Passover lamb, the perfect king, the king that would be mourned over for just a spell. That tomb that Joseph Arimathea shared, it was just a loner. You think about how all of these scriptures point to a, a tomb. We think about our own lives, there's these you know, prepaid funeral arrangements, right? We put this care into, into what's going to happen at the end of our lives. God, from eternity past, ordained how and when and where Christ would die. But more importantly, he ordained why. So that we might have communion with God. That we might be cleansed from our sin and that that fountain in Jerusalem, that fountain of his blood from our Savior who's pierced, might wash away our sins. All these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those two men that, that John calls out give us confidence those men would have understood that the words and the message and the life of a king like Josiah would be types that would point them to Christ. They would recognize what John meant when he said, not one of his bones will be broken. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And again, scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and thank him for that sacrifice that he's made on our behalf, that all of the scripture has come to pass so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Father God, we thank you for the, the tapestry that is your scripture, Lord God, how all of redemptive history 
points to what was accomplished on the cross. We thank you that as a a group of New Covenant believers here in, in San Diego today, Lord God, that we understand, Lord God, that all of this was put into place because of your love for us. We share in the responsibility for your death. And we share in the victory of your death. And we share in the precious promises of your resurrection and the hope of eternal life. God, I pray that as we celebrate this weekend, as we prepare our hearts to to look more closely at the resurrection and the work that you have finished, that we would contemplate the cross, that we would contemplate the tomb, we would contemplate all the ways that you fulfilled your great and precious promises. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is perfect, that your word is true, and that it makes an impact on our lives. As we leave here tonight, Lord God, we pray that you would fix our eyes not just on the cross, but an eager anticipation of the empty tomb. You alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to spend the next three or four minutes just praying silently, reflecting on what Christ has done on your behalf. When you feel led, feel free to leave. I would ask that you um, have your conversations out in the, in the foyer and um, that we just leave in a spirit of reverence anticipating what we'll celebrate together on Sunday morning. Don't want to spoil that, but we know how it ends. May God bless you.